Global Diplomacy Lab. Coffee Break. With Khaldun Asadi. The GDL is a platform for exploring new and more inclusive diplomacy beyond traditional politics. In each episode of this podcast, we want to get an insight into the work routines, perspectives on global challenges and sources of inspiration from our wonderful guests. Enjoy your coffee or whatever hot and cold beverage you prefer along the way. And please consider the show notes as they provide further information on the topics raised. Today, I am talking with Hélène de Bock. She is a diplomat at the Belgian Embassy in Berlin. Hi, Hélène. Hi, Kaldu. Nice to talk to you. So, my first question would be, what are you doing and uh, how do you get your things done? What are your work routines? Well, uh, <laughs> work routines, it's actually quite a good question because... There is no such thing as a work routine, uh, unfortunately, in, in the job that I do. Whether it's in an embassy or whether we're working in headquarters, you always have a plan for your day. And then in the end, it just turns out completely different because when you're working on uh, foreign policy, basically every day stuff happens and that kind of breaks up your, your schedule and you have to react to it. Now, when you're working like I am now in an embassy, basically my job is to report on the German uh, foreign policy, the positioning, informing my German colleagues on our kind of arguments and our concerns and advocating for our um, different files that are important to us. And of course, you kind of set out a plan for your week saying, I need to talk to these people about these topics. But then, you know, there's a new government, there's a new minister, he or she says something which is completely new, and then you have to kind of adapt to try and report on that. It's kind of in a way, it's a little bit like being a journalist, except that your sources are different and your public, obviously, is very different as well. And um, the, the kind of information you get is also of a different quality, I would say. So basically, I start my week and my day out with the idea that I'm going to write about a certain amount of topics. And in the end, if I'm lucky, I can kind of do half of what I planned for. And the rest is kind of, you know, uh, current affairs catching catching up with me. Uh, so, yeah. Not much routine there. So let's say you have to get into a new topic. Like, what is your approach to get all the information that you need? And how do you like collect them and sort out the priority of which information is like really important to get to the, those that you have to report to? Well, I think a very big part of my job is to kind of know from my own capital what's important to us. And um, there it's really just about kind of assessing what my country's priorities are and what's important to us. And then in function of that, kind of reading all the information that comes in. So we get information feeds from, you know, the classical um, open source um sources and news outlets and news agencies. And once we hear of information that's kind of relevant to us, then we kind of try and dig a little bit deeper. And because we work on a government level, for us, that means verifying our information with our government sources to make sure we got it right and that we understand it correctly. And then, um, you know, if we have a concern, kind of voicing that concern and then trying to find a way of kind of, you know, making everybody happy. <laughs> and in any case, <laughs> telling my capital then, okay, you know, you might have read this in the news. This is, you know, 
what really happened or this is what our German colleagues are really thinking about, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if you want to, you know, do your work correctly on those issues, you need to talk to a lot of experts. Mm -hmm. Of course, we uh, as diplomats have to cover a lot of topics, so we don't dig in as deep as I would say um, scientific and academic experts do. And so for us, it's yeah. really important to have a network of people we can talk to to understand some things maybe a little bit better. What's currently a topic that's really important to you that you're working on right now? Well, I have a very broad set of topics I work on, and that's kind of the whole fun of my job, I would say. Uh, it goes from, you know, political, military, NATO stuff, European defense. It's a big, big thing for us for the moment. Uh, we're developing at the European level a strategic compass to kind of see where we want to be as a union on the defense and security, foreign policy issues in our direct neighborhood and in the world. So that's that's very exciting stuff to be talking about with our German colleagues as well. But I'd say a topic which is really, um, that I really appreciate very much and kind of goes to show how different the topics are, which, which, which you, t you cover is, um, the issue of business and human rights, which is also something which is very current now because there was in Germany, um, something called the Lieferkettengesetz, which actually looks at encouraging companies to look at their supply chains and to see that human rights are not uh, violated in the supply chain that kind of produces products that are sold by German companies or by European companies, um, on the European market or, or elsewhere. So that's a I think that's a really, really exciting topic to, to work on as well. You just talked about the supply chains and uh, sustainability and accountability regarding those supply chains. Would you say that this is also a global challenge where there should be more focus on in general? No, absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, supply chain and the responsibility of business in respecting human rights is something that's been, you know, the topic of discussion since the 70s already. And uh, we've been trying to find a global framework for it since the 70s. But it's it's a very complex topic because it involves governments, of course, it involves companies, it involves civil society, you know, unions, NGOs, and, you know, individuals, workers across the world. And if you want to find a framework to make something like that's that complex in a globalized uh, world work, you need to have every one of those stakeholders on board. And that's where the challenge is, because of course, the interests are very different. And the priorities of those kind of three groups of stakeholders are very different. And that's also the job of diplomats to try and make these, these different stakeholders talk and try and find a solution which everyone accepts and which in the end provides a safer space for individuals to work in worldwide and which provides remedy for those who have suffered human rights violations in, in the framework of, you know, production processes. And so there's work going on in Geneva around this, this whole business human rights um, kind of topic. There's guidelines that were adopted by the Human Rights Council in Geneva a while ago. Yeah, I think it's 10 years ago almost, yeah. And uh, we're trying to implement those guidelines now. Um, countries, states um, kind of set up national action plans, which I was very lucky to work on my national action plan, the Belgian national action plan. It's super, super difficult, super exciting and really interesting. And you really feel like you make a difference um, at the end. And um, work's being done also at the European level. So it's really, it's like the UN, the EU, and on a national level, there's all these efforts being done to try and square the circle. Uh, it's, of course, still, there's still a long way to go, but I think we've made huge progress already. In the end, it's about products that are produced and consumers that are buying those products. And I am, you know, we as individuals, uh, we are probably buying products where, 
um, we have to guess that human rights violations are taking place throughout the supply chain, I would assume. What kind of products are we talking here about? What kind of products are they that, that, that we need to have um, a special focus on? Oh, Khaldun, that's, that's a complicated question. Actually, it concerns all products. I mean, I don't think there's really any product you could mention which doesn't have an international supply chain nowadays. Um, of course, there are certain products which are where the risk of there being human rights violations in the supply chain uh, are higher, for instance, minerals. And that's why the EU has, uh, has specific guidelines on uh, minerals extraction and companies who work on this. So the EU has already developed a series of regulations specific to industries where we, we know that the risk there is much higher still than with others. But of course, I mean, it, it, it touches upon everything. It touches upon clothes. I mean, remember Rana Plaza? I mean, that was a huge disaster, uh, which kind of showed the world that what the price of a cheap T-shirt is. Yeah, So it's textile, but it's also chocolate, for instance. I mean, my country is uh, famous for our very, very good chocolate. But, you know, where do the cocoa beans come from? And how do you ensure that they're being harvested in conditions which are okay, which are acceptable, which kind of also um, fit with your human rights obligations and your commitments? And I know, I mean, in, in our case, Cocoa is, is very specific, so we have a specific program on, on sustainable cocoa for Belgian chocolate, which has been going on for a couple of years now, and which has really been um, increasing uh, considerably the knowledge we have of our supply chains, and therefore also the control on implementing human rights within that supply chain. But you know, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right when you say that consumers are also a key to a solution to this huge challenge, in the sense that as long as we don't ask these questions, you know, people will look away from the human rights violations in supply chains. And so I think when consumers show concern and they, they ask companies to kind of, you know, do due diligence and explain how their supply chain processes work and how they control those supply chains, then, of course, the incentives for companies is much higher to do so. So it's, it's really, I think we all have a role to play to face this challenge. And, and as consumers, one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves is, okay, where does this T-shirt come from? Do I have any kind of guarantee or this other product that I'm buying? If I can choose between a certain number of products, maybe I want to kind of inform myself on where that product comes from, you know, what the company policy is of this company, you know, that this brand, to see if I feel comfortable buying something from a company based on its, I would say, a corporate social responsibility attitude, I would say. So, you know, it's a long way. I just recently watched a short documentary about a Chinese hyper-fast fashion label. They have a, an output of seven to 8,000 new clothes every day. And of course, uh, this cannot be sustainable still. There are so many like very popular influencers on social media, for example, that are supporting this brand. And there are many young people that are buying from this brand. What would be necessary to make consumers, especially young consumers, more sensible for the importance of the sustainable supply chain? Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, awareness is a huge uh, and, and sensitizing the general public is, is one of the biggest kind of first 
steps and, and first challenges we faced looking into to these issues. I mean, we had the case when we were looking at our national action plan, which we had a whole process with a whole working group, and I was co-presiding it with, with a colleague from our Sustainable Development uh, Institute. And one of the questions we asked ourselves is exactly the one you just mentioned, is to say, how do we create awareness around this because, you know, people need to know and when they know they will act accordingly and people, you know, uh, one of the issues we have is, is generally is ignorance of the phenomenon and of the problem. Of course, when something like Rana Plaza happens, all of a sudden people's eyes are kind of opened to this issue. But then, you know, people forget and people forget really quickly in today's uh, high speed consumer societies. So what we do is we organize and, and NGOs do this. But on the government side also, uh, for instance, we organized it at the embassy here a couple of months ago in September, an event around this topic where we showed also a documentary called Sweatshop Deadly Fashion, if I remember it correctly. I think it was either a Swedish or a Norwegian documentary. Uh, I think it's Norwegian, where you had these influencers who were kind of put, uh, brought to Cambodia, if I remember correctly, um, and to look at how, you know, the clothes that they're promoting are produced and to kind of confront them with this kind of contradiction, basically. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting documentary to watch because as a consumer, I also, and I'm a very, I think of myself at least as a very kind of aware consumer, there's also a lot of things I saw there and reactions that these young people had where I, if I'm very honest with myself, I would say I probably would have reacted the same way. Yeah, it kind of goes to to show that we all have a lot a lot to learn. But I mean, this raising awareness is definitely one of the first important steps to kind of solve this issue. Where where there's awareness, people ask questions, and where people ask questions, we have to look into supply processes and supply chains. And once we start looking into the supply chains, of course, some supply chains are extremely complex. Very many of them are extremely complex. But when you start looking. It's already an important step because your suppliers know that you're looking and then know that they have to respect a series of, uh, I would say, parameters. And of course, when you speak about business and human rights, human rights is a variety of things. It's about sustainability. It's about environmental rights. It's about social and economic rights. It's about, for instance, political, uh, civic and political rights, rights for workers in these factories to form a union. I'm just, you know, uh, citing an example. So it's, it's a multifaceted challenge, which only can be kind of dealt with if we really communicate and raise awareness around all these aspects of the challenge. And, uh, yeah, and documentaries like the one you saw, like the one we've shown here, and work by civil society, whether it's unions or NGOs or academics or even work by government like, like my government who, who organizes these, these screenings. You know, it's a small stone uh, and we all try to contribute. You started by saying that, you know, that you're working on a multitude of matters and they are, as we have seen right now, incredibly complex in part. Um, what is inspiring you to go along and to dig deeper and to continue what you're doing. What is your source of inspiration? I mean, of course, when I, I, I worked for five years as Deputy Director for Human Rights and Democracy in my ministry in Brussels, I met so many amazing people working on the ground on human rights. I mean, every one of those encounters was a huge source of inspiration for me. I mean, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I'm... I'm a very privileged person, you know, out of, for a variety of reasons. I live a life of, <laughs> of privilege in a way because I'm born in a society where as a woman, I have, 
I would say, equal rights, where I have, you know, I'm, I'm free. We live in societies which protect the vulnerable. So, I mean, then there I am looking at people who live in, who come from and live in societies which are much more oppressive and they have this amazing courage to kind of fight and speak up and try and defend themselves. And so, I mean, that for me is a huge source of inspiration. And then I, I was thinking of any person in particular, and then I had to uh, think of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, because that's also in this whole kind of human rights and democracy and, and, and these debates, which are very current today in the whole discussion around systemic rivalry between, um, you know, um, the West, so to say, and other, other powers. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was really a pivotal figure. She was the first chairperson of the UN Human Rights Commission in 1946, after the, the creation of the United Nations. And she was instrumental in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And today, that kind of, the concept of universal declaration of human rights to say, you know, human rights are universal is being, it's being questioned, yeah? Uh, people are saying, oh, you know, human rights should be adapted to a kind of cultural context, et cetera, et cetera. And so I have to, you know, every time I, I hear this, and I, I'm a convinced universalist, yeah, I have to think back to Eleanor Roosevelt, who I think was, was really a pivotal person in that respect. And there's two quotes, because uh, I was looking up some quotes of hers, which have inspired me. And there's two quotes, which I find very inspiring. There's a short one, and there's a long one. Yeah? So the short one is the following. Surely, in the light of history, it is more intelligent to hope rather than to fear, to try rather than not to try. For one thing we know beyond all doubt is that nothing has ever been achieved by the person who says it can't be done. So I think that's a very inspirational quote because... It is. You know, and that in, in my line of work in diplomacy, there's a few really tough nuts to crack. <laughs> I mean, look around you. Mm. Uh, it, it's not like there's not enough challenges. And I think, of course, we all have the tendency to kind of sometimes um, lose hope and, and despair a little bit at the, at the situation. But I think that has to be our leitmotiv and our motto in life or in work life is to say that nothing has ever been achieved by the person who says it can't be done. So we have to you know, make it work. So I think that's, that for me is a, is a very inspirational quote in my work. I'll give you the other quote because I think it's an important one in the respect yeah, to, go for um, uh, with respect to the whole discussion on, you know, are human rights universal or are they cultural or, you know, what's, what are human rights, etc. And then the quote goes, goes as follows. It starts with a question. Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? They begin in small places close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person, the neighborhood in which he lives, the school or college he or she attends, the factory, farm or office where he or she works. Such are the places where every man, woman and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. Without concerned citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. So that's a quote which I find also very interesting because for me, that's what human rights are all about. It's about, you know, we talk about big principles, but at the end of the day, it's for each woman, man and child in their work, in their home, in their, in their daily life, that these basic rights and this, uh, you know, equal opportunity, equal dignity is, and justice is something which is really essential. That's truly inspirational, Ellen. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. So thank you for that conversation. Thanks so much, Heldun, for having me.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the GDL Coffee Break Podcast. Executive producers are Nele Finsel and Lea Schindler. Audio production by Thomas Reintjes. Visual design by Juli August. Music, Brett, produced by La Crembo. This is your host, Khaldun Asadi, and I hope you tune in next time. <laughs>